man takes a drink. The drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes a man. Ain't it so, Dad? The mind is a blackboard. And this is the eraser. A man tries. He provides. But he's surrounded by mouths. And a family. A wife. A kid. Those mouths eat time. They eat your days on Earth. They just gobble them up. It's enough to make a man sick. And this is the medicine. So tell me, Bub, are you gonna take your medicine? I'm not. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome back to the intersection of faith and fear, where we discuss each week what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the Fear of God podcast. Today's episode is one of our special quarterly King conversations, celebrating the godfather of American horror prose, one Stephen King. Paired with Uncle Stevie this week is also last year's Flannel Graph Flanagan's featured filmmaker, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> so many Fs. <laughs> I, however, am one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me, his fellow co-host Reed Lackey, and well, frankly, you guys, he was here a minute ago, but he real breathily muttered the phrase, eat well, live long, and slinked away. It was a little weird, I gotta be honest, uh, but, you know, we'll just presume that he'll be back. He he tends to do that, so hopefully uh, uh, that will occur here momentarily. But in the meantime, I want to do two things. One... I want to tell you that you can find the Fear of God podcast wherever you get your podcasts and that your official source for all things foggy is our website, thefearofgodpodcast.com. And the second thing I want to do right now is to introduce some friends to you. So, ladies and gentlemen, don those face masks, wash those hands, leave a five-star review, and let's meet what is tied that cannot be untied, the truest of true knots. First, hailing from ancient Rome with wisdom to spare, our one and only grandpa flick, Ian Olson. Ian, <laughs> welcome to the party, sir. Welcome back. It's it good is, to it is, it is hear great from to you. Be here. It's good yeah. to see you. 
you know, you and I got to share some Star Wars love a few months ago. Yeah. Um, but we're not going to stop with just you tonight, Ian. Uh, our next guest is our singular every man. He is the biggest fan of dog soldiers. If he could just finish the dang thing. That's right. <laughs> You'll do what he says just because he says it. It made perfect sense. It is, ladies and gentlemen, Snakebite Andy. Andy Whitfield. <laughs> yes, All right. Yes. Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, it's great to have you. <laughs> You're great. After Andy, we welcome longtime True Knot member and more than a little fun. Uh, because he loves home projects and because, just to be real honest, there are only a few mildly interesting True Knot members and the pickings are slim, it is Apron Annie, ladies and gentlemen, Blake Collier. Blake, welcome back to the show, my friend. I, uh, it's good to be back. Thank you. I would say... <laughs> I would I would say I saw you a few weeks ago, but that's some low hanging fruit right there. Uh, <laughs> you know, penultimately, it only made the most sense that, like Frank and Nathan to Doctor Riedenstein, I would play the lieutenant of the True Knot, and because the word "daddy" is in his name, and I'm one of those. Yes, yours truly is tonight playing the enigmatic Crow Daddy, which friends listeners can leave only one it is the violet eater the meditator he who slinks around knowingly and yes look at our art has a hat as his most known article of clothing that is right the one and only queen bitch of all time read the hat read welcome to the show my friend it is so good to see you well hi there where's your hat (laughs) What the heck? <laughs> it's a magic hat. It goes away sometimes. It just it just leaves me. Well, that's a shame. We'll read all our all of your knot is assembled and tied. We're oh here. Oh my. I I am so excited to see all of your faces again. I'm so excited to be in this conversation with you again. It's really really great to see you. So, uh what's everybody been up to? That's I'm, I'm kidding. Of course, we've all pretty much been up to the same thing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Not much. Not much. Um, Not much. Um, despair um. <laughs> i mean turns out i've got time for a three-hour movie so you know <laughs> there's that there is that um, yes indeed so we are here to discuss uh stephen king's sequel to the shining uh dr sleep but particularly and i don't know if all of you had the chance to um but we are particularly going to be discussing some particular elements of the director's cut of dr sleep which as nathan just referenced is three hours long versus the two and a half hour theatrical cut. Now, just so I know the page that we're all on, was everybody able to acquire and or see the um, director's cut? Everybody? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Um, okay, so as we are prone to do with these kinds of uh, conversations, we're just going to do a little bit of a, a round robin. Uh, I'm going to call on a few people to ask uh, to answer certain questions uh, just to get us into the flow of conversation, and then we'll see where things go. Um, so first off, I'm going to ask uh, who here, we already addressed, everybody's seen the director's cut, so who here has actually read Dr. Sleep, the book? So Nathan, you've read it at least once, right? Uh- <laughs> do i need to answer i mean yes, you just kind of yes, did it did. for me yes. no, no, no. uh 
I'm going to guess what we call a, That is what we call a leading question. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to ask who has read the book. Nathan, you have read the book. This is the thing I know, but have you read the book? Um, yes, I read the book when it came out. Um, at the time, I did not think too greatly of it. And mm. uh, despite the fact that I have time for a three-hour movie, I did not make the time to reread the book. Ah, so I have understood. only read it the once understood. years ago. I did see the theatrical cut and now have seen the director's cut. Cool, cool. Blake, have you read it? No, I have not. Ah, okay. Uh, I, I, I did see the theatrical cut in theaters, and then uh, last night I watched, or the last two nights I broke it up. Ah, uh, I gotcha. watched the director's cut. So, Gotcha. Ian, how about you? Uh, I have not. You have not read it. Oh, interesting. Okay. And Andy, did you read like the first <laughs> 20 pages and then be done? <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia and the rest. <laughs> I was like, I finally Wikipedia it. I was like, what? What is a book? I don't. I don't get it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you are here. Yes. Um, all all right. So I will. Wow, that's some shade right there. Um, so I have read Doctor Sleep the book, and like Nathan, I did not uh, totally care for it, honestly. I, f- I found it a bit disappointing. I did love the idea of revisiting some of these characters, but the novel itself is weak in a couple of places. I was going to ask, um, it just based on how many people had read it, whether you preferred Flanagan's adaptation or the book itself, but not w- since there's not that much exposure to it, I'll just mention that one of the things that I, I'll pivot into this next question. Um, one of my biggest complaints about the book, and Nathan, feel free to chime in with your feelings on your memory of it. Um, one of my biggest complaints about the book is that the true knot in the book feels very weak as a villain. So that question, which I'll then address to each of you for the film, is do you think the true knot as a villain, as a collective of monsters are they effective are they scary are they threatening are they imposing or are they a little kind of undermined by some of the mechanics of of how they need to operate and what they're up against in terms of fading down and everything like that uh ian i'm gonna go to you first how do you feel about true not as a as a villain i okay so um cinematically i think that they uh work but they like for instance um when violet is about to be abducted in the beginning like my wife gasped you know when all of a sudden Mm. there's just more and more people looming in the woods beyond her and rose and i think that that makes for yes an effective like like evil menacing collective but it's also very clear that there's kind of a transformers thing going on where (laughs) like rose and crow daddy like that's that's megatron and (laughs) starship and then you have you have oh wow somewhat somewhat interchangeable like you know, beyond that, mm-hmm. like, oh, so th- that's one of the jet fighter bad guys. Yeah, okay. yeah, the red you know, It's like, oh, hey, he's the so he's the fat one, <laughs> and and he's the skinny one with glasses. <laughs> and then it's only when Abra is is shining that you know you're like, oh, they have names. Oh, Barry, Barry the sack, Barry's the sack because he's no, fat. He's the gotcha. chunk. The chunk. Oh, oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean, very memorable character, clearly. <laughs> Started, well, Barry is a bit of a sack if you can. So. We all. I said what I meant. Okay, I said what I meant. <laughs> um, okay, so wow. uh, Andy, how about uh, how about for you? What uh, what did you think about the True Knot as villains? Were they menacing or not? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> 
Andy, remind me, did you say you had only seen the director's cut? You didn't see the theatrical cut? I did see the theatrical cut, but I couldn't remember it. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure what was in the director's cut that was new, <laughs> but um, I didn't think they were that scary. I mean, they're just a bunch of abductors. They go around taking kids. I guess that's kind of scary. But, right, right. And they suck their essence out of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They do. So they get the, they get they suck a lot. Yeah, they kind of suck in more ways than one. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Blake, what do you think? Well, they're. I mean, they're nothing compared to wide open spaces. <laughs> if we're going to be honest, <laughs> but, yeah. is anything though? Is anything? A few things are. Um. I, I think there were certain elements in the film, like certain moments that it was effective and, and just the pure, it's, it's almost like the zombie thing. Like it's, it's fear in numbers. Mm. Um, you know, when, especially at the beginning, like Ian said, you know, whenever they more and more of them show up in the forest, that's, it's really well done. It's really well sure, shot and it's sure. effective. Um, but as like a, as a, like a whole villain, like really, I thought the most menacing, person in the film was actually Brian Crow Daddy. Uh, yeah. Uh, sure. Just because it seemed like he was willing to pretty much do whatever it took to to, you know you know, get get the girl really. Right. Right. Um mm. maybe Rose to some extent, but really, I mean I think Crow Daddy actually was the most menacing. So I think for me, like there are certain aspects of each character in the true knot that that work well, but as a whole it it's not the greatest villain that King's yeah, come up with. Yeah, him, understood. So. And Nathan, what do you think? You know, it's almost like you, it's almost like they split the difference and in so doing uh, lost something, meaning you almost need a ton of them to make them real visually yeah. menacing, or you need like three of them to give a lot of characterization. Mm-hmm. Instead, you get this like sort of Baker's dozen that, three or four have some persona to them, some personality to them. And the rest are just kind of hangers right. on. You're like, oh, okay. Uh, literally one of them is called short Eddie, you know, and it's like, okay, <clears throat> whatever. Um, that said, uh, I will agree the, the performance for crow daddy and especially for Rose. I mean, Rebecca Ferguson just kills it. Like yeah. she yeah. really brings a lot of gravity to what is, what is a very kind of silly, silly drawn character, you know, like, like there it is. There it is. What? Yeah. (laughs) Landed. No, I mean, that's the thing. Like if you, when I saw the box for Dr. Sleep, I, I looked at the cover and I went, okay. Cause I just counted on like a carnival barker. And I was like, this is going to suck. But somehow Rose turned out to be, it's not like I was endeared to her. She's awful, but I, I also bought it. You yeah. know, so I just I, the I performance is strong. Yeah. yeah, the performance is strong. If you just tell me <clears throat> Rose Rose the Hat is the, right, yeah, is the queen queen bad guy. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> is that all you got? You know, like, <laughs> you just, well, and it's yeah. even more <laughs> Mo- monosyllabic name and an article of clothing. You well, know? and it's 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 even more undermined in the novel itself. Uh, I know uh, you'd said you hadn't read it, but one element that I think Mike Flanagan wisely excised for his adaptation is in the novel, and we'll talk we'll talk about his death in just a few moments. But in the novel, when they kill the little boy Bradley, which is arguably one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the entire film, and it's that way in the book as well. Absolutely. But when they kill him, he has 
a small case of the measles when they when they kill him. And so by ingesting his steam, they have infected themselves collectively. So not only are they up against huh. the fact that, that there's less steam in the world, which is that's what they are. They're kind of like a psychic vampire. They literally suck the uh, what what in the previous book, The Shining is called uh, The Shining itself. They suck that steam out of their victims. And uh, by by killing Bradley, they have essentially, uh, again, infected themselves with a, a disease that is rapidly killing them. So I remember thinking, and I've read the book twice. Uh, I reread it in sort of uh, forward-thinking pre- uh, preparation for this conversation. And I remember thinking, even when I read it, I was like, that undercuts so much of the threat. Knowing that really all they have to do is evade for a period of time, and the true knot are going to just start dropping like flies. Like, something that doesn't happen in the film, but in the book, literally three of them die from this measles thing before they ever even encounter Danny and Abra. And so it's it's one of those things that, uh, again, I just feel like they would have been so much more effective as villains if they had been more menacing, if there hadn't been some sort of things to undercut them in the plot. And I think Flanagan, again, wisely excised that other element from their threat to just add a little boost of they're a bit menacing, but struggles a little bit with the with the characterization, yeah. as it were. Um so I, I mentioned The Shining. Uh, let's let's first address the the Shining itself. So, do you? I don't I don't know if we've talked about this before um, because I believe, if memory serves me correctly, when we did our Quarterly King on The Shining, we did not have our quartet here uh, among us. So it was just Nathan and myself. Um, do you? So a, a, a quick round robin of whether or not you prefer. If you've read it, Stephen King's book or Stanley Kubrick's film, The Shining. Um, Nathan, you and I have already spoken to this, so the listeners probably know our thoughts that we, I think, by and large, uh, prefer uh, the book to the film. But is that, uh, if, am I remembering it accurately for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I respect the film. It it has a place in the canon, a very high place in the canon. But as t- in terms of affection, the book definitely wins for me. Gotcha. What about for you, Blake? Uh, yeah, definitely the book. Um my 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 love for the Kubrick film has kind of waned over time, mm. uh, mainly because the more I find out about what, all the all the stuff that happened during the shooting of it, it just makes me uh, less yeah. enthused about watching it. Um, although I will say, I do love Shelley Duvall more now than I used to. She used mm. to annoy me in that role, and now I actually every time I watch it, I actually grow to like her characterization more. Because um, you know yeah, she's def- not acting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's um, true peril. Ultimately. Um, but yeah, the book is, it just digs into some of the, the, the really good, strong themes that, that King is going for better than I think the film does, ultimately. Yeah, no, I agree with that. How about you, Ian? Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, I vastly prefer the, the Kubrick movie. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Okay, yeah. Because I think that it accomplishes what you've already said that Flanagan does, which is just my feet. My thesis overall is that King is in many ways like George Lucas, and he needs someone to ride shotgun to go. Nah, George, George, don't don't do that. <laughs> um, write it in. Write so, it in. So, so that's why four, five, and six they work. One through three <laughs> do not work because he goes completely, utterly solo. And uh, so he King needs a Kubrick or a Flanagan or you know whomever um, as the co-pilot to excise right or to rearrange or to say well the core of it is this and and uh yeah i think the shining novel suffers i think this happens sometimes with king stories where um 
you know, all of us, we identify with characters and of course authors do, but he, he, I think that he does more than identify at times. You know, it is important that a character succeed. It is important that a character lives, whatever, because that character is King as he is writing it. And I think that the Shining novel suffers from him needing himself in real life to come out of that dark period of his life. And Mm -hmm. I think that the Shining film is the better for just clinching off beyond a certain point the possibility of Jack Torrance's redemption. So that's why I'm so glad that in Dr. Sleep, uh, I think it's a real victory of like character for King that Flanagan could talk to him, speak with him about it and maintain continuity with the Kubrick shining yeah. for this adaptation of it. No, absolutely. While still remarkably honoring his, uh, the text shining too. Yes. Yeah. Very yeah, impressive. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. But ma- maintaining, you know, for instance, Jack Torrance, dies chasing down his son sure. to kill him. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so and yes, definitely honoring it like giving giving Dan Jack's death in the novel. You know, um, Yeah, right, right. It, it is is probably a both and that splits the difference with integrity. I think and and we'll I may pivot to us talking about that ending in a second. It was going to be one of my later questions, but but I like the way you brought it up, but I don't want to give I don't want to miss Andy's opportunity. Andy, right, have you <laughs> have you read uh the Shining book, Andy? No. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so, so you vastly prefer, I would imagine, Kubrick's film. Of course. <laughs> so, so. Like, no, I do not. Right, right, right. <laughs> Just leave it there. It's like, I don't prefer it. No. Um, so, but let's, it, it was going to be one of my later questions, but I, let's, oh, go ahead, Andy. Yeah. I, I mean, the only thing I can compare it to is the TV series. There you yes. go. And yes. so yeah, yeah. I prefer it more than the TV series. Certainly. And the TV series was kind of King's attempt because it's it's popular Stephen King lore that he was very frustrated by Stanley Kubrick's adaptation because Kubrick was much less interested in the things that King was interested in. And I think we've all collectively at one point or another mentioned that like The Shining is one of, for its time, King's most personal books because he, in many ways, is Jack Torrance. He was fighting uh, against his own addictions, um, feeling like he was haunted by his own demons. And so that character is very personal to him. And as a result, Kubrick's film, which largely makes Jack Torrance little more than a utility player in the, the massive scope of this Overlook sort of uh, haunting, as it were, um, King was very frustrated by that to the degree that when Flanagan approached him about adapting the Dr. Sleep film and or the novel, and he said, I want to lean on, because of its cultural significance, I want to lean on so much of the visual representation of Kubrick's film. I don't know how, how widely this was publicized, but King said no. And mm-hmm. and he said, I won't, I won't let you do the adaptation that way. And Flanagan, uh, this is a bit apocryphal, but some featurettes on the uh, film Dr. Sleep sort of unpack a little bit of this, um, where Flanagan had to try a couple of times, and eventually what he did was he pitched to him the ending that we have for Dr. Sleep, the film. He pitched to him, he said, what if we did this? And he pitched, like, essentially, what if I blend the ending of the novel, The Shining, with the ending of the film, Dr. Sleep, and give, uh, I forget who among us said it, but uh, I think it was Ian, basically, like, give 
Danny Jack Torrance's death and Jack Torrance's shot at redemption? What if I did that? King, again, according to the apocryphal uh, account, said, well, let me think about it, called back like a day or two later and said, okay, do that. You do that, and and I'm good with it. And so then Flanagan was off and running, uh, particularly with this uh, with this cut. So let's talk about that ending. Um, I I particularly find it, and I'll I'll tilt my uh, tip my hand a bit, tip my hat, if you will. Um, that <laughs> it's got to be a hat. I feel always got to be a hat. Um, I think what Mike Flanagan, and this is a big statement. I know it's a big statement, but I think what Mike Flanagan has accomplished with this adaptation if not unprecedented, is undeniably remarkable. He has managed not only to be an effective adaptation of Dr. Sleep that is arguably better than the book itself, but he has also managed to reconcile, after like 40 years, to reconcile this long-standing disconnect between the story King was telling and the story Kubrick was telling in a way that I personally find very, very effective. Now, that's that's my cards on the table, but I want to hear what you guys have to say. Blake, I mean, how did you feel about the ending and, and the way the film used Kubrick's Shining, etc.? Oh, it, <clears throat> it completely worked for me. Actually, his attention to detail, the sets, mm-hmm. uh, aging yeah. down the hallways and things yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah even getting the actors to play the roles like yeah i don't know how he pulled it off but he he got some really good acting out of some of those uh and oh, those yeah. are those are actors from various different indie horror films like sure. <laughs> i looked him up after the uh, first time i saw it i was like oh that's where i know her from <laughs> you know so there's just like a long line of that uh, yeah. for a good evening and and i was just i was i marveled at the the fact that he was bold enough to try to pull that off mm. because yeah. most yeah. people wouldn't be able to pull that off. Uh, yep. And I, and yes, like you can see some of the seams, sure. but the acting is so effective and, and, and the way he shoots it is so effective that it did not bother me at all. And actually I enjoyed it more because of that. And I actually think this is a better film than the shining ultimately. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. No, I got, I got you. Uh, Andy, what did you think? Put that about on the just- box. no kidding um andy what did you think about the way that uh again not having read the book but just in general the way that flanagan had incorporated elements from the shining into this did you feel like it was heavy-handed or you feel like it was pretty effective i i mean i thought it was pretty effective um i liked i liked all the cast of characters that came back Mm. um like uh what what is his friend but i thought I thought that actor did a really good job of like he's great. He was and like when the, when he was a kid or when Danny was a kid, like him coming back and talking to him and helping him defeat the yeah. demons of the, the shining. Boxes. Yeah, uh, the boxes I thought was great. And it, I don't know for me, the shining it is was just it's evil. The whole place is evil. The Overlook Hotel, yeah. you know, but. To change it around, it's interesting that somebody could stop it. Yeah, yeah. Does that yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. it carried over? But it's interesting that like you can put the twins in the lockbox right. and they're gone. Mm-hmm. But shining for me, it felt like nobody could could defeat the, everything that had was going on with yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. I so the throwback to the characters from The Shining and like going, seeing the hallway with the moon landing um, 
<laughs> um, with the carpet yeah, right, right, and right. even the um, the naked lady in the bathtub. Yeah, like, yeah. I remember that scene from The Shining. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> and he nailed yeah. it. He nailed yeah. it. <laughs> well, and so so I know I know we're being I know we're being a little trivial here, but like the other thing is you said something really important, Andy. You said The Shining. It feels like you can't defeat the Overlook Hotel, and that is one thing I will give Kubrick, and that I feel that way about King's representation of it in the novel is the Overlook as just a place, and the way it's populated with these ghosts feels unescapable. It feels like you are never getting out of this thing, and. We had just yeah. just spent a lot of time talking about how the true not don't really work as villains, and so it is. It's really remarkable the way Flanagan was able to play around with that whole like Danny has has tapped into something that like he's found a way to stop this. He's at the very least to keep it contained. I love when he sees Halloran again at the nursing home. And he says, like, you know, what That's happens great. to them when they're in there? Like, do they die or whatever? And he says, do you care? And I was like, oh, man, that's it's so great because it's like they're stopped. They're contained. They're mm-hmm. done. And uh, and so I really love that you brought that out because the Overlook does feel just like so imposing and it feels so menacing. Um, and uh, and I love well, I think to that point, yeah, can ahead. I jump in? I think to that point, though, that's what was always a struggle when Dr. Sleep, the novel was first released is is. The Shining is like American pop culture firmament at this point. Yes, yes. And, and the casual consumer of that considers The Shining a haunted hotel story. Mm. And so what has to happen in Dr. Sleep is re-mythologizing mm. the whole universe that it's, that it occupies, yeah, right? Right, right. And, I think that was something that was always a struggle with Dr. Sleep. The book is like, and we're all avid King fans here. We, this is the, it's arguable outside of Reed's insistence that Stephen King is why the fear of God even exists, but (laughs) it's why when a book like Dr. Sleep releases, you're like the true, not what you just, (laughs) what, you know, it's like, it's like, it it felt like a downgrade in terms of threat Mm -hmm. and malevolence and potency. Now to, Flanagan's credit, I think in order for Dr. Sleep, the film to work, heck in order for the book to work, but especially for the film, there's so much buy-in that has to happen, right? Like you, you really got to say, okay, I am here and I'm plugging in to what you've got for me in a way that isn't kind of asked for sometimes by films for, you know, for good or ill. But if you choose to buy in, on the director's cut, especially, it's a very rewarding experience. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, but simply to that point of, I, I, I hope I didn't steal from Andy's time, but like your question of the melding of The Shining and and Doctor Sleep in the <laughs> film, like so much is asked up front. Like when I, I'll be real honest, when I went to see the theatrical cut, one, I made the glorious mistake of going to like a nine thirty screening, mm-hmm. which was just stupid. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, ba- and barely survived. The overlook was the theater and almost ate me. Um, and, and, and thus came out pretty apathetic to be perfectly sure, frank, sure. even though I love Flanagan's work. I was like, well, I, you know, I guess. Um, and so didn't know how I would take to the director's cut. And 
maybe this conversation will reveal the word love for it, but I, I came away appreciating it a lot more than the theatrical cut for sure. Yeah. Just cause it, it takes its time. And again, if you're willing to buy in on all of the, the earmarks of the story, there's a lot to be found there because it's nearly 30 minutes long. Well, it is 30 minutes longer and nearly every additive in the director's cut is a character based fleshing out. It's, it's something that's longer dialogue. It's something that's more substantiating to the theme of what he's after. And, and I do feel like to your point, Nathan, about how going to see it late at night, it's also like the shining can can feel a little slow paced to like a first time viewer, but really ratchets up the tension as it goes on. Doctor Sleep feels <laughs> hear the nuance with the the choice of word I'm using here, but it feels a bit more intimate, which seems odd. But like Doctor Sleep feels like a more intimate experience. The Shining always felt to me like this grand epic, and Doctor Sleep feels much more like again, an intimate character piece of looking at the ramifications of what has happened to these people before and how they're navigating, coping, and then ultimately passing on what they've learned to the the generations that are coming after it. Um, I feel like we can kind of uh, spiderweb into some different things, but I want to hear from Ian on the same question. So how did you feel, Ian, about the uh, the, the the use of Kubrick's... Uh, you're, sounds like you're the... Um, biggest one among us who prefers Kubrick's film to King's book. So how did you feel about the way Flanagan both honored that cultural footprint and incorporated those elements into his film? Well, I want to, I want to kind of like thread around the knot that you mm-hmm. were just tying. Um, and, and Nathan, um, where like, I think that Kubrick shining. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> um, I think that Kubrick Shining is like um, you, you said an epic, and I think it's like an inside-out epic. Mm. It's it's massive um, in the space that it inhabits, but it's also like a negative space. So it's like an inside-out <laughs> epic. There's not a large cast of characters. It's just that the setting is deep and spacious, but you know, so is a black hole. That's the feeling of mm. Kubrick Shining, um, and. So I, I think that it's claustrophobic. It's not epic in this expansive mm. way. It's epic in like a star collapsing kind of way. And you are circling the event horizon for a while before you are just sucked into yeah. crushing nothingness. And that, so that, and that's why, you know, tonally, um, the inside out epic of the shining has essentially, you know, there's existential dread and then it turns into total horror, you know, by the end, you know, um, by by centimeters as you traverse the film and then dr sleep while inhabiting that same universe yes i would agree it's more intimate in that you know there's more than one or two tones in it you know the the shining is is gray Mm. and then jet black and dr sleep definitely has jet black definitely has gray but also has there's actual shine in it there is actual like Mm. luminescence that comes out of dr sleep and that is because it is a very different story. So again, I, um, Flanagan is probably the only person that could meaningfully adapt Dr. Sleep into a film because we know that he handles, I was going to say a trauma. It's, it, that's true. It's just that like, it seems like every horror movie the last two years, like the byline is always a film exploring <laughs> grief and trauma. And it's like, okay, yeah, like, <laughs> That's, that's, that has its place. That's important. But like, can we, can we look at something else with horror 
I think it's well equipped to do that, but Flanagan does it in a truly personal way that it it touches lots of different viewers, whether they have deeply caustic experience with genuine trauma or not, because it just um on that gradient of hurt, Flanagan t- can tell the story in a way that every single one of us, whatever our background and its pains, we can say, yeah, man, that's, that's, that, that's it. I, I need to go along this journey also. Right. I need to return right. to the overlook. Um, because I think in other hands, it would just be like a, guess what? Now we're going <laughs> back to the overlook. Right. And it's like, we don't, I don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> give me that give me that soundtrack well, absolutely that's great yeah that's no great. i I, you know? I completely understand what you're saying like in the novel and i felt this way when i reread it too like in the novel going back to the overlook feels more like fan service than it does in the film in the film that, yes, yes there's a lot more uh i don't know in in the film i think flanagan really substantiates more why Danny is taking Abra, I think I called her Abra earlier, but um, taking Abra back to the Overlook. In the book, Dr. Sleep, it feels painfully like just, oh, we're making a sequel to The Shining, so at some point we got to go back to the ruins of the Overlook. Yes. You know, yes. like it holds no significant plot and, point to it. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Ian. Yes, and, and, and having, again, I haven't read it, but that would have been my, my suspicion, that it would have been the king textual equivalent of you know, mm, the yeah. hound in the mountain fighting. Like, we don't need... Sure. This doesn't have to happen. I don't know I don't know what base you think you're <laughs> satisfying with this. Sure, yeah. But it's not the people reading this. Um, and, and yes, I just I just innately felt like, who, who else is there who can actually do something substantial with the grown child returning to the haunted house? Yeah, right, and right. It, it is only Flanagan in yeah, the field. That's a good yeah. point. Nope. I, yeah, I agree with you. And yeah, it's, it's funny to look at how, like, how much cousins Dr. Sleep is with the haunting of Hill House and, like, how related yeah, they are absolutely. to this whole, you know, just the themes that Flanagan that is was interested in. For I, mean, even, I mean, even Oculus and, uh, um, yeah. yeah. Origin of Evil, like, all those have yeah. a similar byline. No, absolutely. I wonder what happened in his childhood that he's trying to work <laughs> out <laughs> in his films. Um, okay, so so um, uh, we talked a little bit about the performances. So um, what I'm going to do is uh, I had a, a slightly different way I was going to go about this, but I think I'm just going to go around and say, like, touch on at least one, but I would say, like, try to limit it to no more than two, at least one performance that you really responded to. Um, uh, it could be a main character or otherwise. Um, and then if you have one, mention one that maybe you didn't care for as much. Um, Nathan, I'm going to start with you. Um, I wish you hadn't done that. Uh, I'm just kidding. Because I was going to take two seconds and look up the actor's name because I did not uh, do that beforehand. Go slower. Um, <laughs> so where I'm going with this one, uh, I'm going to take what I think is the less easy route. Uh, and also because rewatching the film last night, uniquely the director's cut, this really jumped out at me. Um, Kylie Curran is the actor who plays yeah. uh, yes. teen Abra. And not just in a general performance sense, but sh- 
her delivery of the scene in the van was yeah. stellar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yep. If you haven't or aren't going to watch this one, it's um, I appreciate that you're listening to our episode. So thank you. But um, there's a moment where you and McGregor's character basically mind controls her from a distance uh, and, and inhabits her and talks to another character. So this little performer, Kylie Curran delivers uh, a scene as a 40 something man. And it just, it's really lived in really inhabited, really yeah. embodied, really spectacular scene. Um, that yeah. really kind of stood out on this on this viewing. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. Um, Blake, how about for you? Performances. Uh, I mean, the one that stood out for me in the first viewing and in this one both uh, were easily Cliff Curtis as Billy. Mm. Um, I've I I generally like Cliff C- Curtis and everything he's been in. Uh, yeah, he's great. I don't think he's he's just a really good that guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so. Like, I think for him, like, Billy as kind of the, the, I guess you'd say the AA stand-in. Like, there was, one, one might say, one might say the Dr. Sleep is basically an advertisement for AA. <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> this is, yeah, in many ways. So, um, don't, don't drink a lot, okay? Um, so, I think, I think the put way that he on the played, box. yeah, exactly, put that on the box. <laughs> I think the way he lived in that character and, and, and you could see, even in his facial tics, that that it was very much lived in. Like Cliff Curtis thought about that character, thought about what his backstory was, and actually, like he didn't have a whole lot of lines, but you could tell in his face that he'd lived a pretty rough life. Yeah, oh, <laughs> leading yeah. up to that, sure. leading up to the story, and just his loyalty uh, to Danny yeah. uh, once great. they'd gone through this journey. It's just it was beautiful. Yeah, uh, and it's one of my most. It's, probably one of my favorite parts uh and which makes his death ultimately really traumatizing uh for both times i watched it and it was Um, a especially the way it happened oh absolutely and it was a huge huge gut punch to me when i watched it because he does not die in the book and and i forgot that yeah he does not die (laughs) in the book he survives until uh like the book ends and he's still alive so when andy does that to him i was like no this cannot be the way that this guy goes down it's no it's it's really devastating uh for the again for those who haven't seen the film there's a character in it named snakebite andy and her skill is that she's able to persuade people very effectively to do what they would otherwise not want to do and as she is dying yes and um she's called a pusher and as she's dying she um uh, looks at billy who shot her and took her out she looks at him and says, kill yourself. And he, you know, because of her power, is uh, unable to fight that impulse to do so. And it is devastating. It is absolutely devastating. Yeah. Um, well, that scene also illustrates a great moment. I'm sorry to cut you off. Illustrates a great no. moment and, and also illustrates Flanagan's mastery of the material. Because right before that, Andy is trying to influence Danny and he resists. And that's, that's a yes. really, I don't remember what is in the theatrical that, or rather, you know, there's some very clear things that are in the directors that aren't in the theatrical, but not everything was cluing in sure. for me. But yes. I couldn't right. remember if that was in the theatrical, but I love that moment where she tries yeah. and, and yeah. fails to to take hold of him. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty effective. Um, Ian and Andy, I'm going to come to you in a second, but I, I've got to mention for me, because it's probably one of the more obvious choices. But if I'm being honest, as much as I love nearly the entire cast of characters here, 
one of my favorite performances is actually from Ewan McGregor as Danny. And I'm going to point to one mm-hmm. particular scene. It is a scene that does not exist in the book in any form. Um, but it is it is so much a creation of what Flanagan was trying to do with this, and that's the scene where he goes to the Overlook and sits at uh, the bar, yep. and his father great. is the bartender yep. now, and he's having this... It, it, there's so much emotion wrapped up in the moment because he is now talking to his father who he has not visualized since he was five years old. And and he has been yep. so haunted. We had that scene earlier when he was at the AA meeting and he was talking about getting his pen and saying like, yes, but this one is for my father. This is for Jack Torrance, you know? So now he's talking to him and the moment that Ewan McGregor just blows me away is when his dad builds up that, that substance of, oh, you know, you're going to take your medicine that's what this is this is the medicine and so he puts it in front of him and he says are you going to take your medicine and again i don't know how much of this was flanagan tilting something and how much of it was you and mcgregor like embodying this could have been a, a an uh unattainable view of a melding of both but you and mcgregor picks it up and sets it down like a couple of times and then finally when he says are you going to take your medicine tearfully like almost breaking down his voice almost breaking down he says i'm not and I was just like the the yeah. swell of emotion that's wrapped up in that. Like I'm not gonna make the choice you made, and it's just it's powerful to me. It was very affecting. Yep. I felt like you and McGregor could have coasted through this role because honestly, Danny as a drawn character is only interesting because of his story. He's not interesting just as a character. He's only interesting because of he was the child from The Shining. But in this context, Ewan McGregor brings so much to the role that he's consistently interesting. And, and I thought that was pretty remarkable and something that, because he's the star, might not be touched on uh, quite as much. But um, Andy, what would, you, what would you say, just performance-wise? One that stood out or maybe one you didn't like? What, your, your pick. Well, I really like Ewan McGregor as well. <laughs> Sorry, I stole you. I just whipped it. Like, just, um, everything that Reed said is what I feel. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that happens to me a lot too. I guess since we're talking about performances, and the one that stuck out, I, I do agree with Reed with the, him meeting mm-hmm. his dad again. But the when he has slept with the oh. woman at the oh. house, and so the baby comes out, like how oh he handles God. it, like because his initial reaction is she stole my money for us to do coke let me go through your purse there's food stamps oh here's the money yeah. let me take it and then the baby comes in and he's almost like i don't even care about this until his friend yeah, shows right. up until dick shows up and changes his mind and then to go back to where he when he's laying in bed falls off the bed and the mm. woman and the child are there saying you still haven't yeah. found me you still haven't found me i think there are a lot of things that Danny could have done to be, you know, he, he could have not been an alcoholic. He could have used the shine to help other people right, to, right. to do all, all that stuff. But he's still haunted by leaving those, leaving that little family. Um, he, he's hearing things from Abra, Abra, but isn't getting, you know, isn't taking right, part until right. finally. So, um, I like the arc of Danny becoming something better yeah. than he was, which is so huge yeah. to the yeah. to the theme again of 
of The Shining and of Doctor Sleep. It's it's a lot of what he's trying to uh, to capture is just this notion of yeah, you're haunted by all of these things. Yes, traumatic things were done to you, but you also perpetrated a tremendous amount of of pain and suffering in your own right. And I love 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 the scene when. Halloran is talking to him at the nursing home and Halloran, if it's not explicit, is a ghost in this version. In the book, uh, Halloran is alive for a good chunk of it because his character survives the Shining novel. He does not survive the Shining film. So um, Flanagan wisely made him a spirit that Danny would occasionally speak to. But I love that line where he says to Danny, he says, you're a good man, but you have a debt. And I just I thought it was so powerful because there's so much richness to that implication in a number of ways. I actually wrote down that line. In fact, it's it seems to me you grew oh, up yes, fine, yeah. son, but you still owe a debt. Yeah. Oh, that's it. powerful. It's so powerful. Yeah. To me. That's powerful. Because it isn't yeah. just there's so many ways that you could take it. I mean, we could spend the next 20. We won't, but we could spend the next 20 minutes unpacking just that line alone and what it means to his character. Yeah. Um, but yes, no, totally agree. I I just want to I want to throw out here because Flanagan is such a uh formidable writer read while we're on Danny's character both you and Andy referencing him but the bar scene one of my favorite lines in the whole film it, but though it's heartbreaking is Dan summoning the nerve to resist the spirit of his father's overtures and he says man takes a drink drink oh, takes a drink man. drink oh. takes a man yeah. I was like, dead gone. Yes, That's no, it's, it's in, extremely powerful. There are a lot in this film. Uh, actually, we'll get there in a second. Ian, I, I, I wanted to give you a chance to speak to performance real quick, and then we can get into some script things. Yeah, so, like, okay. Um, the uh, performance of Abra is amazing. Um, and I, I just have to echo you and Andrew both. Like, Ewan McGregor hit a um, really central spot for me for me also the the linchpin is um i call it the temptation scene um you know at at the bar the overlook because that is the moment where everything thus far can yeah. be totally unraveled um the same way like i i love i love the mirror image of it in the shining because jack torrance doesn't take a drink it's just him submitting to the temptation to escape his problems the yeah. same old way and then everything goes downhill from there so even just taking the mental equivalent mm. of a drink is what will un- yeah. undo him, and and having it's it's such a um, Adam Christ thing where um, Dan goes back to the exact same spot and has the exact same temptation offered to him, and with gritted teeth yeah, says right, no. Right. Um, where 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 the first father failed, he mm. he lands it. Um, but Ewan McGregor is able to pull off over the course of the film the pathos of an adult child mm. of an alcoholic. Because when he gets his five month um, coin, you know, he says, This is for Jack Torrance. You know, my, my father stood here once too, and he mm. wanted to get better for me and for my mom. Um, and and th- this is for him. He exemplifies how the child of an alcoholic loves their parents but in that bar scene he also at the very same time can tap into the hostility mm-hmm. that the child mm-hmm. of an alcoholic feels Th- that that every day wants to say 
Why the hell are you doing this? I don't deserve this. What is, what is Mm -hmm. wrong with you? What is the matter with you? Do Mm -hmm. we not matter to you? And he can do it with the, um, the measured, the the control of an adult. It it is so clear that he has wanted to say these things for 44 years. And, and it's, it's not him flying off the handle. And that, and that's what I mean. He's able to, he's able to walk that line where he loves his father. And he has words he needs to say of deep anger and resentment Mm -hmm. to the same person. Um, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do that. It's hard to live that in real life. And then, and then to make it believable in a film, I have to imagine that's also very difficult. Um, I, I think that what you were saying about Dan Torrance as a character, like not being very interesting apart from his story, I think we even see that in the film though, because Abra, the inside of her mind is uh, a whole yeah, uh, right, wall right. of file mm-hmm. cabinets, right? That can be searched through. Rose, Rose says, my mind is a cathedral. Every glimpse of Danny's mind that we see mm. is the maze. Yeah. And boxes. Mm, yes. And ghosts. Yeah. He, Dan Torrance inwardly is not a library because he yeah, is. It has so defined him. Right. That, that is the, that has utterly defined him. His. Yes. 39 years of his life. Um, and that, that's one of the unspoken way. It's one of those things where if Dan Torrance as a character in the film says that, sure. I don't, you yeah. don't believe it because people don't talk like that. But if you just show the glimpse, like, whoa, this is, this is mm-hmm. it. This is what's in your mind. As far as I can see anywhere, it's this maze where your wow. father tried yeah. to chase you down and kill you, where you keep, where you keep all these dead yes. people in yeah. to keep them from frightening you. That, mm. that's really all there is to you. And it's, it's deeply, it's deeply Well, sad. and uh, you mentioned some, it, uh, it reminded me of the moment then, I, and if my memory serves, because I, in preparing for the conversation, I only watched the director's cut. I have seen the theatrical cut before, and uh, I believe this was new to the director's cut, was the whole moment of where, like, he changed his eyes so that his mom would not keep seeing his father in his face. Mm. And... And that I think is an addition that yeah. is exclusive oh, to yeah. the director's cut. Even even him admitting it to the vision right. of his father at the at the bar, um, but saying like I I changed my face. And if I'm correct, a, 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 a diligent listener may say like, oh no, it actually didn't go that deep. At the end, when he sees the vision of his mom, um, if my memory is correct, it's his mm-hmm. pre changed face. It's his back. It's his true face. So his mom is looking back at his. Yeah. At his younger face that still has the vision of his father and connection because yep. it's all reconciled at that point because it's all together. He has now in his own right. way made right what was so busted and broken and, and devastated from before. And I found that just yep. immeasurably beautiful. I thought that was really wonderful. Um, so, so yeah. uh, I mean, we can still bounce in and out of some of those particular specifics if you want to, but let's talk for a couple of minutes about uh, the script in general. I feel like we all ignored Rebecca Ferguson. She's amazing. I left it on the table because I thought ever, someone would take it, but yeah, she's oh, amazing. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, uh, she really she really takes, as we've said about Ewan McGregor as well, like she takes a character that I think it was Ian earlier mentioning that she could, the Rose the Hat is, could be pretty cardboard and could be pretty just uh, almost a silly caricature but Rebecca Ferguson does a great job of embodying the menace to it um, I think yeah. she's really effective in some of her in in her scene walking up the stairs 
intimidating Danny. That's great. That is great. And I love that when he's like, you know yeah. my answer. And she's like, okay, we're doing this or yes. what? I'm like, oh, man, it's it's great. Yeah, it's it's really, really yeah, uh, powerful. That, that um, was good stuff. So let's talk yes. for a second about the script. Uh, we've mentioned, we've ta- we tossed out a couple of specific lines. Um, uh, anything you want to say about the script? I'll, I'll go first, but anything you want to say about the script or if you have a line that you wrote down that you want to make sure gets mentioned or something. Um, I, I've sung the praises of the adaptation as a whole. I could go on and on and on forever doing that. But one of my favorite lines um, in the film that I do not remember from the book is when he's talking with that doctor who's kind of pitching AA to him, which, by the way, that scene, if you didn't notice it, is a replica of the interview room where Jack Nicholson in The Shining was doing his interview for the Overlook Hotel. Mm-hmm. But when he's talking to that doctor and his doctor's like, do you, you know, do you go to church? Like, what do you believe in? And he says, our beliefs don't make us better people. Our actions make us better people. And I found that to be tremendously profound. And I feel like there's at least a dozen or more single, almost blink and you miss it lines in there like that. That is just, if you pause it and think about it, it's like, wow, that is, that is truly pretty profound. That's pretty, that's pretty significant uh, in a number of ways. Um, so uh, this is one where I don't know who has what to say. So I'm going to ask you to just sort of raise your hand and jump in if you want to chime in on script and or line stuff. Blake, you feel like you're, you look like you're, you're itching to say something. Yeah. Um, I think I could almost watch a whole movie of just his time in the, uh, retirement home. Oh, that's man. beautiful. Yes. It's just, amazing. Just, just the moments that he has with the, uh, with the, with the patients who are about to die and the cat jumping oh, up man. on the bed and just those, like there, there's a, there's a story in there where this, you know, an alcoholic, is coming out of addiction and working in this home and like all the stuff that breaks him down in this film is done by his constant confrontation with death over and over and over again. Yeah. And just recognizing the, the pain of every, every person he meets trauma and, and history and, and seeing that, that the things that we do, don't just impact our own lives, but impact yeah, our communities, the yeah. people around us, no matter how private we may think those actions are. Um, and so it's, 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 I think it's, I just really appreciate that time that Flanagan took to really just kind of settle in a place for yeah. a little bit to appreciate those moments and, and those, those times uh, where he's able to kind of be a, a, like a soothing yeah. influence and, and a, uh, <laughs> Doctor well, yeah. Sleep, as and, they say. And, um, oh, and, sorry, and so, sorry. I'm getting excited about something because, yeah, like, no, it no, just struck ahead. me. Um, I forget who said this earlier, but somebody was like, you know, it, they could have gone the route of just being like, "Now we're going back to the Overlook," you know, like really bombastic kind yeah. of thing. And yeah. I tell you, yeah. in a lesson, the way you just delivered that, it feels like that was Ian who said it. It probably if, was. If yes. you were trying to, <laughs> so, <laughs> but a lesser filmmaker and a weaker adaptation, that stuff would have been excised. Because it's not the main conflict. Yes. It's not the, it's, yep. it's, it's not, uh, exactly. directly the, the story. So a lesser material would have said, well, that's your first thing to go. When in fact, I so appreciate that he took that time with it because it is so substantial, uh, for all the reasons and more that you said, Blake. Yeah. Go ahead, Ian. It, it, well, it, it is the, um, it's a crucial part of the story because we have a contrast between Dan and, uh, Rose, the Mad Hatter. Because she also has a moment where, you know, Grandpa Flick is dying. Oh, yeah. And, and, and he says, I'm scared. Yeah. 
And uh, she goes, "No, you're not." <laughs> and and does and, and and does her whole like epic like theology of glory, like, "No, you are prime badass material. <laughs> you you know no fear. You eat forests." And it clearly doesn't work for him either. He's screaming all the way out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. He's he, he's like, "I know I did all that, but I'm dying." <laughs> I sound really awesome when you say it that way, but I don't don't feel feel really awesome. Problem is, it's all the past, Rose. And uh, (laughs) wow, that totally, totally sucked the steam out of the pathos of what I was going for. Um, Sorry, but 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 Dan, um, Dan has the big problem for a long time of like suppress suppress your shine. Right, right. right. Ultimately, he lands on, you know, this little light of mine at the very end and (laughs) it's very nice. But he does he does let it shine in these incredibly small ways, these secret ways where the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing Mm. with just one on one dying people. And he doesn't like correct them. He um, they said what they meant. You know, (laughs) they're scared. Yes, sure. And he says, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, I understand that. But it's okay. It's going to be okay. And and Rose is the complete opposite, right? Like I'm scared. Like no, you're right, not. Right. And then let let me let me tell you the whole catalog of your awesome deeds, mm-hmm. so that you can go down like a true badass. And it's like, well, no, he still dies screaming, yeah. because he knows nothing awaits him, right? Because he's a psychic vampire from the bowels of hell. Yeah, his yeah his essence and- <laughs> is going to get sucked up by like the rest yeah, of people, and, and all of us are going to cannibalize your yeah. essence the moment you're you're dusted. Essentially, so- and and the the <laughs> contrast there, I love what you're scratching at because like hers is pure ego, is like comfort by ego. Yeah, exactly, like, you're amazing. Exactly. You're awesome. Whereas. Danny is taking a much more subdued approach. Like it's like peaceful and everything. And and his patients are truly comforted by it. They're like, no, you you Ex- help. Exactly. You know, this this helps. And I love the refrain that they keep bringing in. Um Flanagan has a, in at least two interviews I've heard expressed that um spiritually speaking, he's an agnostic. But I love very much that there was this subtle little refrain of when they're talking about this vastness the people are dealing with fear that there's nothing after it and because of the most gruesome and violent things they said no we go on i can tell you with complete assurance we go on and it's because they'd experienced all this horrific ghost thing but the way that even that can be pivoted over into something hopeful is truly inspiring like the 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 things that scared us and the the things that are i'm reminded of you know never let me miss an opportunity to bring in the exorcist that in the novel the exorcist it is father Karras who's deal is struggling with his faith and is asking for some substance to faith and in response has to fight for the life of this girl who's possessed by a demon so it's right. it's the wickedness and the ugliness that can somehow be pivoted into something that we it sort of rattles the scales off of our eyes and sees like no 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 we we go on and there is there is something to fight for and all of those different you know well i think i think the the one the one moment that specifically spoke to me is when i think it's i believe it's the first person he he goes in to visit and the guy is starting to panic and he just puts his hand on the guy's head and he says he says stop or I think it's silence or, mm. or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. like everything in the guy's head just goes away 
Mm. And he's like, I, I shouldn't have done that. And the guy says, no, you helped me. Yeah. And it's right, quieting all right. those voices of fear in his head mm. about what about what's about to happen. Mm. Well, and, and, and that that's. Re- yeah. Yeah. That return that returns later too, Blake, because yeah. the patient tells him, like, you're right. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. And yeah. that's what he says right. in his final moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it's it's truly wonderful. Um, I have two more things that I want to mention before we maybe get into something. It feels like we're already tap dancing into some some things, but uh, I, I want to throw out if, a script note. I Anybody was else? just about to say, but before <laughs> I move on, me, Nathan, you talk as if I'm gonna forget you. <laughs> please, please don't forget me. I'm so scared. That's the, that's Remind, me of, my greatness. Like- <laughs> Remind me of my Nathan, greatness. Nathan, what? you are not scared. Okay. You're not worried about being forgotten, Nathan. <laughs> Wow. But no, we haven't heard from either Andy or Nathan yet. So yes, script stuff, please. Nathan, you're clearly uh, Andy, would you like to, to go? <laughs> you're fine with the chip, baby. <laughs> okay, I'll do that too. Um Yeah, yeah. Uh well no, I do love the um you know, I've watched enough Flanagan at this point to have a great deal of respect for his scripting as well as just his directing all across the board, but you know, little notes read you, you mentioned, but I do love our actions versus beliefs line that the mm-hmm. doctor says to him. No, that Danny says to the doctor, um, Halloran to Danny says it all comes around. Ka is a wheel. That's just a great little yeah. Yeah. deep cut King reference. But I think it's not even a script note as in like actual lines, but Again, this is what I was mentioning earlier. This film asks you to buy in real heavy to a lot of stuff. But if you do, you're richly rewarded. But the the production design of not just Rose's flight uh, mm. oh, through yeah. the night, which is mesmerizing, but also uh, Abra's mental trap for her. Oh, yeah. man. Like, if you, if you were to just tell someone in a pitch meeting like okay uh you know the filing cabinets and the celestial vortex and the spotlight and the purple hair eyeless abra oh roses oh, dream catcher roses feet <laughs> yes i thought of the exact right. same thing you've seen yeah. dr strange right, right. right like her feet get heavy this and, is dr Sweet. and then abra's in her head i'm like oh you know like it doesn't work on the page it, it just doesn't it's stupid but <laughs> it really works in the film. Yeah, it does. You know, yeah, part it of it's the commitment of the performances. Part of it's just the ratcheting menace. Um, you know, part of it's you're concerned Abra is going to get drunk on her own power. Like there's a lot of stuff that's going on there. Um, and I just yeah, love absolutely. separating from that scene. I love the intersection of the baseball boys death with Abra screaming with Dan, the fir- the appearance of red rum. Like all of that together mm. is really oh. effective. Oh, that whole that whole payoff is so fantastic, Andy. Uh, we're gonna get to some, to, to one la- one last thing before we pivot into theme. But Andy, you got any script and or production notes to comment on? Nope, I don't. Nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> we took them all. We so, took them all. <laughs> so Nathan, you just mentioned Bradley's death. So if there is a moment at which the true knot feels genuinely very imposing. It's with, and Flanagan did it on purpose. Like, Jacob Tremblay is nowhere in the promotional material. And at this point, he's a pretty popular and famous and known child actor. So he knew that most people were probably going to have the experience of, oh, that's, that's Jacob Tremblay. Like, I, I know that guy. I saw Room and, and I saw Wonder and like, yeah, I, I know that little boy. And so then to put that poor kid, what 
through what he puts him through because his it's like you feel like the film is not going to go there and then it it finally does so this is a two-part question feel free feel free to answer either or both parts when i call on you but um do you feel like that scene is um valuable to the story is it necessary does it go too far and kind of pivoting out of that are there other elements that you feel like are truly sort of scary or haunting uh about what the film uh delivers and um so uh blake i'm gonna come to you first uh well first off i i don't think it goes too far uh, in the sense that really you hadn't really felt a an actual threat mm. up to that point yeah, yeah. like a, a full-throated threat yeah Right. Like, yes, Violet at the beginning, there's a little bit of a, a creepiness factor and, and you see the potential, but you see the actual cost Ugh. of what these people do yes. uh, with this and, and, and what the torture they put the kid through to get the full amount of steam, to get the full shining out of them. Yeah. I mean, it's troubling to watch. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But you you almost have to have that for the the true not to actually have any force mm. in their villainy and and, and so because um, if they didn't have that I'm not sure whatever uh, threat they they had like by the time we got to the the overlook I'd be like nah yeah, right the the hotel will take care of her it's sure. not a big deal yeah. it'll happen somehow and and it wouldn't I, I wouldn't have bought in yeah probably at that point but once they take Jacob Tremblay. Which, who, by the way, I I did not really care for his acting. In this <laughs> that's <laughs> if you want a hot take. That's uh, a fire starter right. take right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but don't kick the dead kid while he's down, Blake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but I think I think you have to have that in in order to really uh, kind of it, it's the classic psycho thing. Like you bring in the big name, mm. you know, actor or actress, and then take them and out. you kill them yeah. right mm-hmm. off the bat. Yeah, and, and so. It's it's an old trick. It's been done in numerous movies. Yeah. You just don't uh, you just don't expect it from a kid. <laughs> <laughs> List them for I us. Just, I just did. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so I think I think it really it really makes the the, the threat real. Yeah. Uh, for understood. for the first time in the film. Yeah. Understood. So. Uh, Andy, how about you? That death or or another scare in the film that was really effective for you? Well, I, I mean, I said it earlier, but. Um, the the mom and her kid who oh. wake um yeah. wake them up like yeah. was really frightening because yeah. it was Danny's act, and whether it be his addiction or whatever it was something that he did um because he couldn't I mean how how hard would it have been to kind of shake that lady awake. I mean, was she dead already when he left the kid there, or was she just like passed out? She was. She was probably dead. Now it's it's. There's a case to be made that maybe she was just passed out, but she had she had clearly you know like messed up the sheets with her own vomit, um, and that that's that's a strong sign that somebody is is close to dangerous levels of of being passed out when you're seeing all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's possible. It's highly likely she was dead when he left. Um, well, just like he didn't save her Mm. kid so he could go back and save Abra. Yeah. You know, like he, he had the opportunity to, I mean, that kid could, could barely walk and stuff. And he's, he left the money to help out. But, um, but Danny, 
throughout the whole movie, Danny's trying to redeem himself um, for not really speaking up on things, yeah. I think. And so um, when he sees that, they, it, it adds to his character when he sees those the mom and the um, kid because um, that's he took the wrong action there. He took the wrong step of not getting help for the kid. I mean, cause he could have just called somebody and said, Hey, I think there's um, trouble with my um, friend, right. you know, or something. Yeah, something. <laughs> Call 911 and tell him to go yeah, to the apartment could, or something. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, but he took the action of that. And I think him helping Abra helps him kind of come to terms with, the not helping somebody when they were no that ma- really that makes sense that makes sense Nathan how about for you Bradley's deaf and or another scare uh sure um I I would agree with Andy I think the effectiveness of the the pairing of what Dan does and leaving those characters and the way they wake him up in that nightmare are, are terrifying um. You know, of course, Bradley is is rough, no doubt. What's what actually what this moment of our conversation is making me think is so for me personally, I got into Flanagan late, you know, circa Haunting of Hill House and then went back through the bulk of his catalog. What something like this viewing of the director's cut, specifically of Dr. Sleep does for me, because I know generally from a scare perspective, he's so resistant to the jump scare ideology and so is more a dread builder but i think he's a little hamstrung in this one because it's sourced elsewhere right Ah, and so i think it'll be interesting to me to see as his credibility and clout continue on the path they're on and his his budget and his abilities his resources get vaster although i think everyone's resources are contracting a bit right now but you know what i'm saying like it's interesting to see what could be next from a feature standpoint that said something that's meant to be scary that at a certain point, you know, after a certain point, anything becomes comical. Right. Um, and the naked old lady after a while, (laughs) you kind of start to expect to hear like calliope music or something, you know, it's like, Oh, oh, and there's a dank shower curtain being put. Come to grandma. You know, it's just like, they said that that actress, she starts she starts doing a little jig you oh know just like, they said that that actor like when they're walking when they're walking around on set because she's wearing like a full body wetsuit so she does not feel naked that's a great moment yeah i and saw they, that and they said that like she would just be sitting at craft services and the robe would fall open and everybody's like oh my god but, <laughs> but she wouldn't know she wouldn't yeah, know yeah. because she doesn't feel uh that's naked. how it works for me sometimes yeah too. sure yeah let that let that sink in um why are you wearing that stupid man suit <laughs> why are you wearing that stupid naked old lady suit um ian how about for you before we uh, pivot over into theme. Well, I'm glad that that exchange happened before I answered so that it wasn't just <laughs> me being really glum and moody. Um, because, like, I, um, the way that the, there's a severity that keeps ratcheting up from, um, it is really, really heavy to see the neglect that happens with the baby. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just, oppressive. Yeah. I mean, immediately when the baby is still alive, but has a clearly soiled diaper Mm. and you can just tell like 
this kid is alone often and is left crying often. Mm. And uh, it's immediately heavy. And it's ratcheted up by, yeah, just a really awful scene, right? Like, they're dead. Mm-hmm. Me, the, the, the woman, and the baby both. And um, just psychologically, that's there's already, like, a violence being perpetrated there. And, and I can, um, as hard as that is to endure, and that those both were, like, very difficult. For, we, had, we had to pause, like, when I watched this with Kristen, yeah. you know, because that was really hard-hitting. Yeah. Um, but when, when we got to Bradley's death, I was I was dreading it coming because I was starting to feel like, ah, oh, this is not going to work. Uh, the first time I watched it solo, like, I was deeply uncomfortable with it. And, uh, th- I mean, I know that everyone who's not a psychopath is going to say that. Like, I'm really uncomfortable with oh, that. Of course, it's supposed to be. Yeah. But, I don't know, I like it. <laughs> there, there it is. Like, everyone except a psychopath. Um, <laughs> I meant what I said. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at risk of sounding like a prude, like I, I'm just not sure if it's right to depict like a, a child suffering like that in, in the prolonged way that the film does. Like I, my wife was it pretty unnerved by it. To me. Yeah, my my wife was pretty unnerved by it. It was it was, it was a moment when. It, it would have easily been understandable if she had been like, I, "All right, yeah, I'm I'm not watching any more of this. Like, you go ahead and finish it." But and, yeah, yeah, and again, it's not like, like I get it. Like, um, the 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 true not hunts down children. Like, I'm not saying don't have that. Yeah, and it's not like I I've never seen Law and Order SVU. <laughs> you know, like something like that. I just mean, I just mean there's a difference between like, hey, this happened, right? Right. And right. and and here's seven minutes. Of a child being stabbed and screaming for his life. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if if it's right that or like that really awful scene in that Exorcist prequel where the child is being like eaten alive basically by dogs. Right, 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 right. Um, again, wow. again, I, I. That was an odd pivot there. No, it's true, but uh, like, <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I've never seen it. Never seen it. Oh yeah, it's it's um. I mean, that's the it's thing. Like, awful. I, I when I when I saw that movie, you know, I, I left and I was shooken, and people were like, "Dude, you watched Dead Alive, and that was too much for you." He's like, mm. "Yeah, yeah." There is a world of difference between the two. <laughs> yeah, are you are you being stupid right now? Yeah, no. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, look, I just I I feel I, I feel um. Um, already the um, like oh oh, that's how Ian feels. Huh? Not from you guys. It's just no, of, of like, course, of course. I I've I've been I've had these conversations like with other people who have like a tighter sense of like restrictions on what should or shouldn't be depicted, and I'm just now in the position where I'm just feeling like yeah, I just don't know if that is right, and I um I don't mean this. I don't mean to sound like a prude. No, I don't course. think that I'm being one. Um, no, not, but not at all. That's yeah, I just uh, I don't I don't know, man. Um, I shouldn't I shouldn't put it this way. I shouldn't act so like um, I don't know, relativistically skeptical of what I what I feel right here. Like I yeah, I don't think it's right. No, I I, I understand what you're saying, and what makes a moment like that particularly problematic is that in some sense, like I'm I'm remember I don't know why this is the moment that immediately came to mind, but there's a there's an extended sexual assault scene in the girl with the dragon tattoo that I feel is very yeah. unnecessary. David Fincher's version of it, not the Swedish original, um, that I feel is very unnecessary and I feel like is pretty exploitative. 
Um, and I've heard some cases and defenses be made like here and there. What makes this moment in Dr. Sleep so particularly challenging to excise is that um, in the adaptation of it, this is not only the thing that the true knot does, but it is also the way that Abra intersects. And it is also the way yep. that Danny is brought into it. So it is such a nexus for the overall story that it is really, really difficult to do uh, to do away with the moment. Although it feels in the, I mean, like I was watching this film with my wife, and those minutes were more uncomfortable than I think I have ever been in in any film we have watched. Because I'm like this ever since I watched Basic Instinct with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's or monsters ball. Oh my <laughs> lord! This, you know what? I don't feel bad anymore now. Now I don't feel bad. <laughs> yeah, you're good. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. So, but but no, Ian. Sincerely, like I hear what you're saying. I think if anybody, I think I, there was an article that passed around that I did I did not read, but I remember the headline specifically saying like, "Hey, by the way, it's okay if you walked out of Doctor Sleep." And basically, it was saying like that moment itself. You don't have to feel like. Uh, that you're acting morally superior or whatever for that scene to be too much for you. It's it's was too much for the actors. Like, I don't know if you heard in behind the scenes stuff that like Jacob Tremblay was doing this. And when it was all over, every single member of the true knot from Rebecca Ferguson to Flanagan himself could not speak. They were like tearing up and they could not speak and did not know if they could do the take again. And Jacob Tremblay like hopped up, ran over, like high fived his dad. Like he was fine. He was good. But they were all completely rattled. Picked up the baseball mitt and started tossing it with Barry, Barry the chunk. It's like, come on, Barry. So, but until he moves to Florida when he's 12 and becomes an alcoholic. Yeah. yeah. He's fine now. Wow. You say that now. Yeah. But, uh, but no, just sorry, Jacob. But, but just to, just to validate that, like, no, that's that scene. Uh, that's why one, it was one of my questions. I was like, does it go too far? I wanted honest answers, and no, I don't think you have to feel bad for being honest with it. Um, but we've 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 discussed things for quite a while, Nathan. I'm gonna uh, kind of uh, chuck the ball over to you. I'm gonna write on your chalkboard and and say like, hey, you know, like why don't why don't you lead us into a few more deeper waters, uh, if you will? What's some things that you think this film had on its mind? <laughs> well, Reed, I will receive the ball chucked to me and. <laughs> Throw it down the ten yard line for a field goal three pointer. Um, I don't get sports metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, you know, something that really, I, I, I I'm going to ask this kind of question of us, and and we can just kind of follow where it goes, um, if need be, introduce other ideas. But the first time I saw the film, even with my ambivalence to it that has turned around a good bit with the director's cut is that, that a line that really jumped out to me was it's, it's one of those blinking, you miss it kind of lines, but it's where crow daddy is um, talking to Rose. It's probably about half or two thirds through it's, it's not early. And she is sort of, they're, they're kind of mutually lamenting, how hard it is to find strong steam in their mm. kind of parlance. Right. And Craig Daddy has this line and he just says, I don't know. It's, it's diets or cell phones or Netflix, but there's a lack of steam. I'm paraphrasing after that. And what I want us to just talk about for a minute is like in a, in a three hour film, that's two seconds and even not Textually, what the film is about. Right. But the film is about 
the diminished essences of people in the world. Yeah. Mm. And, and that line, especially for a person like me, maybe for you guys who, who tends to consume a lot of media and, and that kind of thing, which is fine in and of itself. It just signaled this real kind of talking point that I want us to hang out in of like, I don't, I don't think that's just this fun little script nugget. I think there is a yeah. diminished sort of soulfulness to the world and to the people in it, especially in these days. But I don't want to be short sighted and say, Oh, it's like right now, 2020. It, there's, there are ways in which it feels like we're at the tip of the spear of like, Oh my God, like everybody is just so dumb and shallow. But I have to acknowledge too that that's probably not a purely contemporary thing. But I don't, I don't want the question to be, why are people so shallow? I want the question rather to be, and I want to frame the conversation more of like, if, if we kind of mutually acknowledge that feels like a reality, lack of depth, lack of wisdom, lack of richness of spirit, lack of soulfulness are there. And, and what are we doing kind of mutually, uh, on, in our individual self in our sort of familial settings and, and sort of social settings around us? Like, how do we combat that? How do we push against that? And it can be, it can be worldview adopting kind of ideas. It can be kind of practical, tangible things. I don't, I don't know. Really, it's just meaning to be opening the door into, um, this kind of cathedral of ideas, if we will, <laughs> of how does this idea resonate with you? Did, did you pick up on that in watching the film? Yes. And then subsequently, what are ways in which we can point to? to cultivate soulfulness for ourselves as well. Yeah. This isn't like a deeply substantive answer yet. I got to really like linger in what you're asking, but yes, I, to answer like a part of that question, what Crow Daddy said stuck with me immediately. Um, because, because it cuts against what you would, you know, Dan says like, Oh, there's lots of people who have a bit of shine. So you would think it must be very simple to find victims Right. But for them to be, you know, saying like, man, it's getting harder and harder. You, um, you're, you're looking for a whale, you know, blowing, blowing steam, you know, and, uh, uh w- when he gives like his hypotheses, you know, I just want to connect it to, um, something that Rose says and about what you said about like, yeah, that's not only 2020. Um, you know, Rose, Rose says to Danny that, you know, the steam kind of gets polluted as you get older, right? And what I thought of was the Breakfast Club. You know, so that's not 2020. But, you know, what they say in the Breakfast Club is, you grow up, your heart dies. And that's what I immediately thought of. I mean, that's why the best steam comes from kids. It's because... Now, I we can run the risk of being Victorians about it and pretending that there's this, like, you know, deep well of innocence in kids when kids can also be messed up and malicious too. But I guess what I would say is while they're not 100% that, at least that is more characteristic of them than it is us, you know, blood sucking, joyless adults, you know, so it's the, the soullessness for what I'm, what I'm hearing from this, um, film from the discussion and, you know, you saying like, it's not just about shallowness. Like, yeah, what I think of is it's, it's not being really all that alive, you know, a la what they say in the breakfast club, like your heart dies, like being biologically alive, but not receptive to any more than 
I don't know, the material means by which we numb ourselves against all the extremities of being alive. Like, whether they're really good, like, blissful, ecstatic, or really crummy. Um, but we try to numb ourselves. It's like uh, we have, we feel this need for a compressor to just tighten the bandwidth of our experience to something manageable, but that manageable then is always a flat line. Instead of just the peaks and the valleys, ultimately, of absolutely just horrible things that put a dent in our soul, as well as, like, really beautiful, deeply life-affirming, deeply um, uh, affirming a, a sense of, like, you know, I, I knew that this wasn't all, right? You know, uh, like, like the song, is, is this it? Um, that, that, that's kind of more of the sense I get of it. And that's what we get from Dan himself, right? Like we, cause you ask yourself like, so how is it that he hasn't been seeing ghosts all this time, but he's been numbing himself for the better part of 30 years with, with alcohol. Yeah. Right. And so, yes, what Crow Daddy does is focus in on, on prescriptions and then like electronic media. But these are all, um, you remember what Jim Gaffigan said about, uh, all, all these different things. They're all McDonald's. <laughs> Right, whether it's gossip, what, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, it's all it's all McDonald's yeah. in the soul. So, all these different methods that we have for numbing ourselves, they're all they're all booze of the soul in one way or another. Yeah, and uh, for that, I, I meant for that just to be a really brief introduction <laughs> to, to talk. So, I'd like to Man. I'd like I'd like to, to to pivot off of something there. Something that Halloran says to Danny on the bench in like the first 10 minutes of the film is he yep. says in passing, he says the darkest things are the hungriest are the hungriest and they eat what shines. Now yep. we know the context of the film being these monsters, the true not, etc. But the, the other things that are hungry, I'm also connecting it to that line that Nathan referenced earlier of a man takes a drink the drink takes yeah. the drink, and then the drink takes a man. The darkest things yep. are the hungriest, and they eat what shines. When Crow yep. is speaking to Rose the Hat and says, Steam's deficient because of Netflix or because of all these other things, these are the things that, in excess of moderation, out of alignment with proper whole health and and just uh, a... a anything taken to its extremity is going to suck the life out of you. Literally. Right, yes. Whether that be some yep. malevolent power or principality, uh, th this uh, a real-world version of the true knot, if you will, or addiction, or trauma, or uh, tacit amusement that you have given yourself over to, to whatever degree. I had a conversation many years ago with uh, a friend that sadly I don't keep as much in touch with anymore, but he really dug his heels in on the difference between the words amusement, which if you parse out the the word to muse means to think, and amusement means absent of thought. That's what amusement is. It's absent of thought. Right. And so he was positioning the difference between amusement and recreation or recreation Recreation. And, and this, the, the difference of engagement and the difference of the way, you know, like Nathan, when you talk about just 
the dimming of the light and 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 I love that there's a metaphor to be gleaned from the fact that they're shining they call it shine that that that's what they talked about and uh and it is this thing that can be polluted or diluted or mm-hmm. corrupted to it, to a degree by things that happen to you and things that you willfully do to yourself and i think yeah one of the most prescient things that happened like our our culture right now it's it's hard to speak to this globally or hum- from a humanity perspective because really all I know is America and American culturalism and American consumerism. So it's difficult to speak beyond that scope. But I know for point blank fact, I cannot play almost any game on my phone without seeing an ad for 12 other ones. And and they're all just like, oh, like uh, play this again, download this one, download right now. Already 90 million people have downloaded this game. You'll love it. You know, like all of these different things that just suck you in. And we've made jokes casually before about how like I can't keep up with all of the different streaming platforms and all of the different things that they have to say. We were walk, we were taking a walk. Uh, staying six feet away from everybody, but we were taking a walk, me, my wife, my son, and on our walks, one of my favorite things about what we do is that tends to be the time that we ask each other questions. My son loves to talk about all kinds of different subjects, and so it usually comes up to like, oh, what do you think about this, or what do you like this? And it turned into a would-you-rather game. And the would-you-rather question came down to, okay, I was asked the doozy of all questions, and they said, would you rather give up movies for the rest of your life or give up books for the rest of your life. And my I thought I labored on it for a moment and then it was funny because my answer officially was like, well, I would probably hold on to movies. And then the moment I said it, the moment I said like I would probably hold on to movies, there was it was like a piece of my soul died. Like something like and I say this kind of jokingly, the but steam I'm gonna, came the, the out of your mouth. It was like came out of my it was it just evaporated. <laughs> But but I had this experience that I think is relevant to this conversation, and then I'll hush, that the moment I pondered the notion of never getting to meditate on the written word again t- mm-hmm. took something out of me. I don't want to be too dramatic than the moment was, but that thought, seconds though it was, took, diminished me somehow in that, in that yeah. scope. That then when I pivoted and said, no, I would get rid of movies, did not quite have the same effect. And I, God, I love me some movies. We're talking about a movie right now, you know, rather than the book it's based on. But it on. did start as a book, I was going to say. Yeah, it did. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I do think there, there is something to be pondered on about the, the, not only what you engage with and how frequently you do, but the way in which you do. It's not something new to this show. We talk, we mention that in different contexts all the time, but the way in which you do. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I do think that is, um, is pretty crucial of a consideration. Yeah. Go ahead, Nathan. I was going to say, someone's going to jump in. I'm about to go. Uh, but go. You're cut free. Fly, my friend. Be free. It's pulling back the shower curtain. I'm here. Um, <laughs> No, no. The things that are coming out to me here are just like, like, you know, and, and we, we are pushing past the, some of what is in the film, but taking the idea that again, I think is sub and textual about soulfulness and, and, and richness of, of personhood. And I do think as a person who partakes liberally comfort and convenience will kill us like yeah uh, ian you reference booze of the soul like like i am talking to you all on a on a smartphone right now and can see your lovely faces but we as a species have not yet named 
directly and in a way that's meant to actually help us the addictive properties of the things we now carry around on us 24 seven and even set that aside. That's a pretty dramatic one, but even set that aside of just read to your point, movies versus books kind of idea. And, and I don't want to single out particular media per se or anything like that, but, and more meditate on this notion of comfort and convenience. My, my go-to sort of mentor from afar these days of Richard Rohr talks about, uh, inconvenience is suffering and we hate suffering. Like even, even getting cut off in traffic while we wouldn't typically consider that suffering, anything that causes us that disruption, suffering equals disruption, this idea. And something I, maybe it's quarantine time, what have you. I, I typically am really bad. I'm a, I'm like an, uh, uh, slow moving, iceberg it's like it takes me forever to uh, actually adopt things in a real deliberate fashion but roar's comment that i mentioned a few months ago on the show that god comes to you disguised as your life like i don't have that written on my bathroom mirror though i've thought about doing that but it takes me a really long time to do things um but i have operated if if a month ago i was i was at zero percent operating in that mindset I'm now at like five to 7%. So it's not dramatic, but it's there. And I've started in moments where, you know, we've got a three-year-old right now. Um, She is, it's not terrible too. It's just FYI, you with young ones, not quite at the three-year-old mark. It's, it's the, I don't know, make up a adjective there, but the threes are rough and they're, you know, she's becoming very um, pushing a lot of boundaries and, and being real, just kind of one extreme or the other on the other side of that turn. I've got an 11 year old who is flexing a lot of those similar muscles in different fashions, right? Like I had this real pained moment the other night, my 11 year old who pushes a lot of boundaries and and that sort of thing in a, in a good way. I got about as frustrated as I might've ever been and, and had this real heart heartbreaking sort of feeling around that. And it, it took me having to say this disruption, this suffering, this inconvenience is trying to teach you something. And, and, and my God, we hate being taught things about ourselves. And so what do we do? We, we, we booze literally, we booze figuratively, we avoid the introspection. And it sounds like I'm being, you know, kind of authoritarian about this i'm not like i'm learning this too but like as we're processing this you know it's interesting that to your illustration ian earlier of dan's mental landscape is literally just this barren frozen may labyrinth that has nothing in it and 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 why it's because from that moment till this one he didn't fill it with anything he didn't right yeah he he yep. avoided the reflection he avoided the contemplation um yep. you know he avoided recognizing if god comes to me disguised as my life i am fleeing for my life away from it right like i've got to right. fill it with other things anyway this is just kind of what's stirring up in me here well and and i want to I- I don't, I don't want to commandeer this, but I just want to pick up on like the threads that you're laying down and, and, and <laughs> knot it up real good. And true. Truly. <laughs> truly. True. Knot it up. Um, Verily. 
but you know some some of those threads there you know like god comes to you disguised as your as your life and you run for your life and immediately what i'm thinking of is uh our master saying whoever mm. would save his life will lose it and that is that is us i feel like because he is saying when you are in that pure animal fight or flight mode, you are going to try to evade the disruption. And the disruption is the fountain where grace is issuing out. And you have to be there because it's not coming. I know that people use that Leonard Cohen line all the time about like um, the holes are where the light comes in. Um, but mm-hmm. the, unfortunately it's true. It's just plain true. Um, and I, I want to, connect that further to um, try maybe try to be substantive because you're asking like, okay, it's not a, it's not enough just to lament our soullessness and our lack of living and all that. So, so what do we do, you know, about that? And I don't have any answers because I'm not a genius and it, the world is not lucky that I showed up in 2020 so like like you're saying i don't come on let's sell yourself short buddy well i'm not trying to so (laughs) i don't want to sound man (laughs) authoritarian either but all so all like that now pay it (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay all right so all i can do is commend that's great what's been passed on to me like okay so you all know like a month or so ago i went on a uh, a silent Mm -hmm. retreat right and um I have to commend, uh, and this connects also with what we've already mentioned from the movie. Like, you know, Dan says, you know, our beliefs don't matter, our actions do. And the, and the doctor kind of is like, eh, because, because that's not quite right. There's a lot of truth to that. Especially, I feel like that really speaks to people who change nothing about their lives, but they'll tell you everything's hunky dory because right. they believe X, Y, or Z. But, but the true not <laughs> does things. Because they believe things, right? So, so it, it is, it is a half truth. And it's a half truth that a lot of people need to hear to get shaken out of their own stupor and the booze of their soul. Um, but basically, one of the things that I would pra- practice, practice is important. It's, it's not just enough to now say like, Oh, okay. I have to latch on to a different worldview. Because there are tons of people who just rest content on autopilot in a worldview. Yeah. Um, yes. yeah. Right? Um, and that's that's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it. Your soul can be just as dead and, and you have signed your signature on yeah. the worldview document. Right? Um, it has to come alive in practice. And in fact, your, your beliefs change as a mm. result of practice. So you mentioned roar. Mm, I have good. to com- I have to commend to you contemplation. And so I would say something that doesn't sound scary like prayer. That's true. Okay. I think that we should all pray more, but I also don't want that to sound like some fundamentalist sermon. Like y'all need to be praying more. Then things will be no, better because I'm not promising anything like that. In fact, what I am learning about myself and about the practice is that I think all of us talk way too much when we pray. I mm. think that we need to spend a lot more time shutting up and just waiting and just listening for when God shows up. 
And you know what I mean. I'm not going to no, give of that course. the death of a yeah, thousand no, qualifications. God's always there. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I know. So just one of them. Just one, one right of them. Right to the head. Just, just one, one qualification. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise punks are going to come up to me in the street like, oh, no qualifications, huh? And like, no, I need to. I need to, You left 999 sitting yeah, right there on the table. I, I need to flex. I need to flex a little bit, you know? So, but that's, that is one of the concrete things I am convinced that all of us need to engage in a lot more to, to, open up we, we are so curved in on ourselves and that kind of contemplation and waiting for god opens up that closed sphere not completely and automatically but i guarantee you the booze of the soul only contracts it more it only curves us in on ourselves yeah. until we are that black hole until until we are that point beyond the event horizon that light does not yeah. escape where light does not shine at all um, practices like that, and like I'll just I'll, I'll just go for the jugular with this one. the the true the true not. <laughs> I mean, they they eat people, right? And I think one of the practices that we have to right now we can't do it, but we can long for. We can long mm. for the Eucharist, man. the The one righteous mm. victim who gives himself to be eaten, and promises to change us in that encounter. So, you know, a lot of people inside their libraries, their repositories, and to a lot of people, mm. those repositories are just food. Yeah. To the dark forces in the world, it's just food. And we, we, we need food. We're starving. But instead of biting at each other, making victims of each other, I think we need to long to eat. Commune. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Communion. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, we, uh, that was long. Probably, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're probably going to pivot toward an ending, but I don't, I don't want to, uh, leave Blake and Andy out of the opportunity to, to shine any, uh, of their own particular thoughts on this. Andy, uh, wh- what do you have to say in response to these ruminations as, as they were? <laughs> that, that, that he's, old, con- that he's old, just contemplating, that old familiar man. Laugh so, I I just I'm gonna be honest. I don't know the question <laughs> that we're talking about. <laughs> Y'all and? things, and it's really great, but I don't understand <laughs> how we got here. You know what? I ask myself right. that right. every day we don't of my totally life. Either. So, <laughs> and Andy Andy got dosed real big by a crow daddy, and he just woke up in the van. <laughs> All right. So here's so here's what I'll say then, Blake. I'm going to invite you to share your thoughts. Andy, you can just jump in if you if you have some like, oh, that's that's great. Um, so so Blake, take it away, and then we'll pivot to the fog meter and wind things down. Uh, pretty much what Andy said. No, <laughs> uh, no, I'll I'll add one thing. I it's I really do think y'all said what what really needs to be said, and I think it's really beneficial uh, to our listeners. But I think just as an example, um. I've gotten to where I no longer actually sometimes enjoy films. I just consume mm. them. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And to the point where there are some nights where I will literally go from streaming service to streaming service looking for something and then I never yeah. watch anything. And then I'm just like, sorry, 10 o'clock. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I have accomplished mm-hmm. nothing during the evening. I could have spent that time right. reading. I could have spent that time writing. I could have spent that time mm-hmm. in silence, waiting, yeah. like Ian said. I could have done so many things, with, but instead, yeah, I kept clicking. Right. I get it. Yeah, I get it. 
was trying to find something that will satisfy that that hole that yes. can't be satisfied uh, in those moments. And 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 it's 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 paralysis of choice, but it's also just the fact that I'm looking for something perfect when there's nothing perfect mm. to be had mm-hmm. in that space. And so um, that's that's more of an example. So <laughs> I see I see that hand. <laughs> I, I'm going to try to tie this together and, and, but, and Reed will just have to shut me up at some point, but, um, it's like, it's, it's, it's this, it's this yes. And right. It's, it's, you know, to your point, Ian contemplation, uh, at the same time, my wife and I were having this conversation last night and I was sharing with her. I've been reading a lot of Walter Brueggemann lately, as y'all know. And, and specifically she was like, Oh, you know, tell me a little bit about what you're learning. And, I'm going to throw this sledge, this grenade in a backpack here and then run into other places. But, um, that's a deep cut. Uh, that's a real, that's a deep cut real right there. deep wow. cut throwback yeah. fear of God <laughs> reference. Um, so I was like, well, he actually paints this really fast. He Brueggemann paints this really fascinating picture that sounds really great. And I, I think is pretty interesting of how the whole of the Bible is all about economic oppression and, you know, the year of Jubilee and debt and robbing people of their spiritedness by robbing them of their property and their land and this sort of thing and Jubilee and all this sort of stuff. And that ultimately uh, the church is complicit and pointing to the afterlife or, you know, the by and by and ignoring our neighbor. So I, I rattle off this really huge thing and she she's kind of jaw dropped and she's like oh my gosh so so what do we do about that <laughs> i was like well pff, hell if i know you know and she's like and I, I was like it was this it was comical but it was also kind of heartbreaking because this is right. what i'm terrible at and what she's great at she's like i have learned this new thing i'm going to apply this new thing i'm going to figure out a way to apply this thing in a practical tangible way and you know so to so affirming the the dichotomy of contemplation and action right it's yeah, it's yep. but it's it's our beliefs lead to action our actions lead to belief it's they're yep. kind of in concert with each other yep. and i have this this humbling moment where i'm like <laughs> listen to this profound sort of uh true knot that just formed in my brain and my spirit and she's mm-hmm. like well what are you gonna do about that i'm like well pfft. I don't know what are you what what are you gonna do about it you know <laughs> but there's such deep I'm such a firm believer in these days of those types of ideas that I don't, I don't want to leave that on the table. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to, because I'm as guilty of it as anybody. And there are moments where I'm like, man, you know, in quarantine time, school's out. I'm basically a glorified, you know, stay at home dad, uh, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and so in a sense, Oh, is that my booze? Well, no, it is only if you neglect to see God in your life in this moment, which is mm. your call to this this tiny little thing. Now act accordingly, right? Right. Yep. Co- connect the dots as you're able. I guess. Yeah. No. I I I I like it very very much, and I think you know it's it's fascinating to me because this this entire conversation is only one of so many things that this film raises in me and and touches on um i i think it's uh it's remarkable we could probably go on for another easy half hour 45 minutes but i think uh that's a good place to sort of 
wind things down and uh, and pivot us over into uh, the ever-present fog meter, our very special metric of fear and God, where we rate a film's substance and its scare factor. I'm going to lead the charge on this one, on the fear factor for Dr. Sleep. Uh, charge! Da, 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 da. Um, so, on the... Particularly when the film is compared with its predecessor, The Shining, I think the visceral scares uh, sort of dip down a bit. There's definitely some effective moments, um, but uh, but it, it, it's, it's just a different kind of dread build and a different kind of uh, unnerving factor. So I'm going to give Dr. Sleep a six on the fear factor. Andy, what say you? Um, I'm going to give Dr. Sleep a five on the fear factor uh, because... That's what I'm (laughs) (laughs) How about for you? Oh, yeah, you're just contemplating. I think I was worried the... my mic had dropped out for a second. <laughs> I, it's, it happens, man. Oh no, no, no! I heard you. Waiting for God to speak to him. <laughs> you you say that, but that image that I think it was you, Blake, called out about um, Dan putting his hand on the man's head. Like that's really speaking volumes to me right now. Um, mm. And I just love I love that yeah. run of the film. Um, Fear factor. Um, uh, you know the the kind of one two punch of the death of Jacob Tremblay and the the mom and baby at the beginning are strong. I don't know that the film as it exists rises much above those two, but for those two, I think I'm with you, Reed. I'll go with a six. I thought too okay. much about it. Go ahead. Um, what do you think, Blake? Uh, I might go with Andy. Go with a five uh, for pretty much the same reasons that everyone said. So. Yep. Um, how about for you, Ian? I'm going to go with a five for exactly the very same reasons that everyone <laughs> has said. <laughs> My man. Um, so uh, I'm going to pivot back to Blake for the God meter. What would you give this film for its substance measurement? I uh, against uh, what's because this. I, I don't think this film did very well. Right. Not fine. In, in, I in mean, the big scheme of things, like critically, it got a little bit, but on the whole, it just didn't quite connect with people. Compared um, to projections, that's true. Yes. Yeah. I. Is that is that your determination for substance it, in your life? No, no, <laughs> like, no, 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 no. It's, well, no, how it's, much how much money is in your wallet, and that's going to no, tell me. You know, part of it's part of it's for me. It's it, it's just being like aghast that people did not connect with this on a more intimate level. Like huh. there is so much here. Like that's cool. If you just take time to actually sit down, buy into it. Yes, you have to buy in. It's not an easy movie to just sit down and, and accept. <laughs> you know, it's there's a lot of potentially silly stuff <laughs> that you're you have you pretty much have to be like, okay, I'm going with I'm going on a, this ride. A lot of people saw the, the box and put it back. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, if you can buy into it, like there is just so much depth going on here and it, it makes me sad that people did not see yeah, that yeah uh mm-hmm. or or did not attempt to, to to see it for what it had to offer um i'm gonna give it i'm i'm actually gonna give it an eight uh for god because right. i think there is a lot that could be taken from the actual text of the film and then could be added upon through subtext and through your own meanderings so yeah. uh i like it ian how about for you on the god meter uh i'm gonna go with a seven 
because the substance is wholeheartedly there. But I think that, um, it, I don't think it's the, I don't remember who did the editing on this. Uh, I'm just adding that because I was going to say, I'm not sure that it's like a fault of Flanagan's or, or of the, of the script. But I think that sometimes, um, there are transitions that are really sharp, like really, really sharp. Um, a scene that lasts one minute. There, there's a couple decisions like that that kind of um, halt the baking in of some some motifs and some themes um, at times. Yeah. Um, and and that I think that's the only real um, knock against it substantively because it, it just feels kind of like you've got a morsel in your mouth. And then someone's like, no, no, now you give it back. <laughs> and uh, that's... <laughs> And then you put it right back in. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was good, but don't be selfish. Come on. You know, um, so yeah. Okay. Seven. Um, Andy, how about for you? I'm going to give it on the God meter. An eight. All right. I would give it an eight. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh. <laughs> um, Nathan, how about for you? Um, I, I think to, to your point, Ian, I think there's kind of too much going on. It's, it's, it's kind of overstuffed yeah. and and that's why the buy-in is so necessary to kind of just like, okay, I'm going to dial in and just kind of go with whatever this is going to give me because it requires a lot. Um, but I, but knowing Flanagan's work at, and as much as I do at this point, he really is such a thoughtful, I mean, this word has come up a couple of times, kind of soulful artist and he channels that really well that I think, uh, I'm gonna stop talking and give it an eight. That's where All I'm right, going. eight's where you're headed. Um, I, for myself, uh, highest among us. Um, the only thing. Wow, keeping, <laughs> no, I am the highest among us. I'm just letting you, are, you know. Read the hat. <laughs> I am read the hat. Um, no, I'm gonna go ahead and lead with my uh, measurement. I'm gonna give it a nine and a half. And the only reason I don't give it a solid what? ten <laughs> is uh, no. The only reason I don't give it a solid ten is because I. I do feel like its nature is such that uh, it's a bit hampered by the narrative restrictions, by the weight of being connected to The Shining. But there is so much richness for me in this about things we didn't even touch on in this conversation that we could have about like our responsibility to vulnerable people, which is definitely present. Um, yep. The the uh, dealing with trauma by going back to painful places and revisiting old wounds. I mean, there's so much in here that we do not have the time to get into right now um, that makes me feel like this is really uh, a very substantive film. One that I uh, think... Uh, everybody should see uh what that means is that we give dr sleep officially a seven out of ten i can think of no more appropriate measurement that we could give uh having all the pod bros back together than a seven out of ten on the fog meter but perhaps (laughs) the more pressing and important question i'll lead with my own is um I would wholeheartedly recommend this film um, with the asterisk that the Bradley Trevor death is gruesome and you might want to go refresh your drink or pop some popcorn during that point and skip or that moment. Potty break. Yeah, something during that moment. Um, everything else about the film, I think, is really deserves to be seen. It's really spectacular, and I love it very much. Um, Ian, would you recommend the film? I would recommend it, and I would um, I would do the same thing. I would be up front like there, there are some deeply – unsettling uh, sequences involving like violence against kids. Yes. And, sure. and just give a he- heads up on like the timestamps 
for those yes, things. Sure. Yeah. Understood. But understood. I, but I would say like, but it's within the frame of a really great story. Yes. Um, that I recommend. Absolutely. How about for you, Andy? Um, I would recommend it. Uh, I wouldn't ask people to turn away from the kid's death though. Um, because I, I think it just, it's, it's important. It. Yeah. yeah. You've mm-hmm. got to have that punch and it is uncomfortable, but sometimes I feel like if you don't see the uncomfortable things, how are you going to face it? Fair. Yeah. And so, <laughs> but, um, so I, I think you just have to, it's part of the story. You've got to see what these people, the, the crow people are going for is kids and they're going to go all the way for it. And you've got to see that yeah. part, um, to see how dangerous yeah. they are. But I would recommend it. And I would say, watch yeah. the whole thing. No, okay, all right, you got it. Uh, Blake, how about for you? Would you recommend Dr. Sleep? What Andy said. <laughs> what Andy said. That's great. I, I love this. Um, Nathan, how about for you? Would you recommend it? Uh, the director's cut, mm. I would. Um, and, and listener, if you're curious, the director's cut is on the physical copy DVD that's red boxable. It, you won't get it if you just rent it digitally. Um, but it's long it's definitively longer it's just for the amount this movie asks of you i may as well get all the director's cut yeah, in return sure. um because the the venn diagram for really appreciating this film is there's a lot of of layers yeah. in play uh but but no i mean i i think it's if you like Flanagan, if you like Stephen King, it's an e- yeah. easy recommend. All right, good. So that puts uh, yet another quarterly king in the books. Uh, it is always a pleasure to have all of the Podros back in session. Um, thank you, thank hey, you barely. all very very much for devoting the time to this conversation, the time it took to watch the film. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm just going to say a big big thank you to each and every one of you for having this conversation with me, um, listeners. Next week. We are pivoting into something pretty special. I'm not going to unpack or preview all of that right now. I'm going to ask you to stay tuned to social media. I'm going to ask you to stay tuned um, to the feed. We're going to have some really cool things. Uh, we think they're cool. We hope you think they're cool coming in uh, to the fear of God in the coming weeks. So um, stay tuned to all of the relevant locations to find out where we're covering next. And as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and to be on your way rejoicing. Pod Bros, thank you very, very much again. Appreciate it. Thank you, boys. Thank you. All right. Thank you. We'll see you all next time. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and morethanonelesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.